Good morning. We'd like to welcome you here on this second Sunday of Easter as we continue celebrating Christ risen from the dead. Please stand and join us as we sing together.
We've come today to glorify you, to worship you, to offer our lives to you. We know that you're here with us, and we just simply ask that you would speak deeply into our souls, and you would help us worship, and you would be pleased with all that we do in this hour together. And we ask this to the grace of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Before you see, to take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship. great to see you as uh, we gather for worship today and as always there are things happening in the life of the church that uh, things are listed in your bulletin uh, tonight small groups uh, start meeting again after last week's break and koinonia is at seven in wesley chapel wednesday evening all of our ministries on regular schedule just please note that for uh, the boys and the girls clubs there are some special events and there's information in the bulletin about that next sunday morning uh, we gather for worship again at 8 29 40 and 11 Next Sunday evening, if you've had a chance to look at the bulletins, a special night, Jared Anderson will be leading uh, the Koinonia Worship Time. Jared's the, uh, the uh, composer of uh, Hear Us From Heaven that has been a theme for our prayer vigils and that uh, we've sung many times. So uh, please take note of that and the information there in the bulletin about that next Sunday night. There are a couple of inserts in your bulletin, one about uh, working in the nursery through the summer months. Um, many of our nursery staff are college students, and so uh, they obviously are gone during those times, most of them. So if you can uh, help out, that would be great. It's an opportunity to serve the body in a very tangible way. There's also an insert about uh, 30-hour famine that the youth group is uh, participating in. There are always uh, prayer concerns that are on our minds and hearts as we gather for worship. Some of them are in the bulletin. Others are not, but uh, we know God hears us, and we remember these as we pray together in a little bit. We're really pleased this morning to uh, welcome uh, Reverend Dr. Joey Jennings, who is our district superintendent of the Western New York District of the Wesleyan Church. And uh, he's here, and uh, we're glad to have him here. We've asked him to share just a few words with us as a congregation this morning. Thank you, Pastor Wes. It is good to be here. And I probably come as a district superintendent this, to this church more than some of the others. I have in-laws here and family here and have a history here, but it is a delight to to be here uh, to, to represent the district. I try to bring a scripture to different churches I come and, and share with. I want to share this morning from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, one of the things, this was Paul writing to one of his favorite churches, and so I see that expressed in his thankfulness and his remembrance, the fondness that he had for the church. But did you catch the, the, the emphasis on the past and the future here? That God that has been at work in you from the very beginning, from the first day, and you've had a partnership with, with Paul is saying, with the church until, from the first day until now. And I want to thank this church for the partnership it's had 
with the, the other churches in this area, with the church, the Wesleyan churches in general, but also through the influence of the college. Uh, just refresh, I was, I was reading some last night of the history of the college and refreshing my memory on that, that some people sort of associate that this, college, this church grew out because of the college here. It was, in fact, the other way around, that the church was here and, and said, we need to have a college. We need to have training for some of our Sunday school teachers, some of our pastors. And so they, they started a, a college for the first decade or so that the pastor of this church was the entire religion department at the college until they had too many students said, we need to hire some other people to help us with this. But the influence that, that you have had over these years, and especially many of you are students or faculty at the college still, is, is, is countless as far as the number of souls that have been reached because of that and, uh, and is continuing to this day. We as a district are, are celebrating 150 years this year. Uh, 1861, we were founded as a, the Lockport Conference, and we've had a couple of events. Last summer, we had an a, a opening rally, a worship rally with Dr. Bud Bence. We had the 40 Days of United Prayer in the fall. We're wrapping up this year of celebrating our, our sesquicentennial with a, a celebration as a district, uh, let's call it Laugh Out Loud. We're having Tim Hawkins come up to Eastern Hills Westland Church, actually this coming Friday. Uh, and so we're, that's also a fundraiser for missions. And so that's part of our sesquicentennial, sesquicentennial year. As I share about the district, it, the district is really the 33 churches. Like this is, this is one of 33 churches in Westland churches in Western New York. And I, I share some of the, the good things that are happening, but I, I want to emphasize a couple of college graduates that are now pastoring and doing some, some great work. Uh, Christopher Baldwin graduated from Houghton College. He's pastoring at the Vine Westland Church uh, on the east side, on, um, in Depew, Lancaster area, just outside of Buffalo. And uh, they have just this year, they, a church plant that's been about six years old. But this, just this year, bought their first building. They've been meeting in public schools, and they moved from one building to the next as the school board sort of saw fit. But they finally had their own uh, building this year and just have really thrived in that. Their worship has increased from a little under 150 to over, over 200 most Sundays. And so we celebrate what God is doing there. Also, uh, Steve Dunmeyer. Uh, also, Houghton Grad is, is pastoring probably our fastest growing church. Also, a church just under 200, but it's, it's just growing. Uh, tremendous work that God is doing through that. We are planting a church. That's one thing I think the, the strengths of a district is where different churches can, can come together to help plant new churches. Uh, Dr. David Shemenda is pastoring Home, home uh, City Westland Church in Buffalo. And actually, in two weeks, they'll be having their first Sunday morning worship service. They've been pulling together their core group, uh, have a core group of 20, 25 people, and they'll start worshiping in two weeks. So we ask for your prayers with that. So uh, we see what the, the district is doing. But I also want to encourage you with the future. It says, being confident of this, Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. The Houghton Westland Church has a unique context for ministry. Ministering to the college students, to the academy, and, and the students there, to the communities in Allegheny County here. And I believe that God is using you and is going to use you. Even that, that your, your, your reliance upon prayer, the emphasis that the church has put on prayer, the emphasis on the, on the need for the Holy Spirit, is going to, to do in us something that we cannot do of our own power 
of our own strength. I was reading uh, just in the last couple of weeks a book, Forgotten God by Francis Chan. And he's talking about the, the need for the Holy Spirit to be emphasized in our churches. And he says, the world is not moved by love or actions that are, that are of human creation. And the church is not empowered to live differently from any other gatherings of people without the Holy Spirit. But when believers live in the power of the Spirit, the evidence in their lives is supernatural. The church cannot help but be different. And the world cannot help but notice. That's what we need. We have so much to offer, but it is only through the work of the Holy Spirit flowing through the church that God is going to bring about the the ministry that he is calling us to accomplish. So let me challenge you in that. I believe God is going to carry on this work until until he returns in the best days for for Houghton Wesleyan Church, for this community, as we rely upon the Holy Spirit and let him work through us. Thank you for letting me come and share. Know that I do pray for you and remember you fondly with, with thanksgiving every time. I thank of you. God bless you. Thank you, Joey. We appreciate that. And um, it's, we're just so pleased to have uh, his leadership with us as a, as a district and have the opportunity to work closely with him on a, in a variety of ways. And uh, God has blessed us. And uh, this is certainly, uh, we have great leadership. And uh, we need to continue to pray for he, him as well and uh, as he works with the various churches of our district. At this time, the usher is going to come and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offering. Children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church.
pray together. If you'd like to use the altar rail as a place where you come and pray, I invite you to join me. Father, we come to you in this moment of prayer because living in a a world shaken apart, we seek stability. In a noisy world, we want inner peace. In a fearful world, we want courage. In a world of rising and falling empires, we crave a new vision of your eternal kingdom. So hear our prayers. We pray for your peace in the world. We ask that you would hold back the forces and systems of evil. And that you would encourage every person who is working through your grace for justice and good. We pray for the leaders of the world that 
You would start with the leaders of this nation and the nations that all of us might represent. And we ask that you would use them in a way that we haven't seen in a long time to bring your grace and your power and your healing to this needy world. Father, we pray for your church. We ask that you would unite your people wherever there are threats of division. Lead your people to the truths of your word rather than just to our own human understanding. Protect your church from attacks from the inside and outside. Let your people be known by the loving spirit of Christ. We pray, Father, not only for this church and pray this for us, but also for the churches of Western New York. And we particularly think of our brothers and sisters in the Wesleyan churches. We pray that you will help them to to be your people in the place where you've called them. And we pray for Joey that you would lead him and guide him as he works with the churches of the district. Give him wisdom and courage and and the ability to, to know how to lead as you desire. We pray for the home city church as they are preparing to begin their launch. And we ask that you would help them to, to, to be a presence in their community. And we pray that you would bless them immensely. Father, we pray for the needs that we represent here. We pray for healing. We pray for comfort. We pray for your presence in the midst of our struggles and our grief. We ask, Father, for patience when our prayers seem, the answers to our prayers seem to be delayed. We pray that you would help us to trust you, that you know best, and that in all that we are hoping and anticipating, we will see you at work and trust you are at work even when we can't see. Help us as we move into the last few weeks of the semester. And we ask that you would bring closure and that you would give us grace to complete tasks. And to do so with a spirit of love and compassion and patience and grace. Father, thank you for hearing all of our prayers. We pray that you will continue to kindle our faith. Make our consciences sensitive. Strengthen us in our troubles. Send us out in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The crucified one and the risen king. And we offer our prayers in his name. Amen. Our scripture reading for this morning is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. 
Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, they are nearsighted and blind. They have forgotten that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please stand and join us as we sing together. My soul finds rest in God alone, my rock and my salvation, a fortress strong against my foes, and I will not be shaken. Though lips may bless and hearts may curse, and lies like arrows pierce me, I'll fix my heart on righteousness. I'll look to him who hears me. Oh, praise him, hallelujah, my delight and my reward. Everlasting, never failing, my redeemer, my God. Find rest, my soul, in God alone. When evil seeks to take a hold, I'll cling to my salvation. Though riches come and riches go, don't set your heart upon them. The fields of hope in which I sow are harvested in heaven. Mercy, though life is but a 
too deep to measure. My king has crushed the curse of death, and I am his Father, we, we are here to worship you, to learn of you. And we ask that as we continue in worship, that your word will speak deeply into our hearts and souls. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I got a note this week from um, someone who told me about a conversation they had on Monday with a little three-year-old, and some of you may have seen this. Um, the little girl said to him, Dad, is it, is it still Easter? And he said, no, that was yesterday. It's over. And she said, well, is Jesus still alive? I read that and I thought to myself, I think that epitomizes the concept that a lot of people have about Easter. That we, we see Easter as the end of something. When actually it's the beginning. We tend to think that Easter is the end of Lent. And to some degree it is. But actually as the church fathers designed the calendar, they were thinking much more that Easter is the catalyst for a whole new season. And so for the next 50 days, we're in the season of Easter. And the reason that the, fathers, the church fathers knew that we needed the season of Easter is because we tend to think Easter day, it's done, it's over with, and we forget about it. But they realized how central Easter is to the whole idea of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That we, we continue on 
focusing and thinking about Easter. And in fact, they said every Sunday ought to be a mini Easter. Every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. It is that central. But I think for most of us, we tend to to come to the day of Easter and it's a great celebration as last week was. And then we say, well, now it's time to move on to something else. And we forget that we are followers of Christ because we are people of the resurrection. We are people who are connected to the risen Lord and the risen Lord changes who we are. And when you read the pages of the New Testament, you, you see the writers in a myriad of ways and, and, and through a variety of, of, of examples helping us understand that really everything else that's written is, what, is about what it means to be people of the resurrection. People who are followers of the risen Christ. And one of those places where we see this worked out as we begin to understand something of what it means to be in this multifaceted idea of being resurrection people, one of the places is Second Peter. And for the next few weeks, we're going to, we're going to think about and look at what Peter writes in this second letter about what it means to be resurrection followers of Christ. This letter is written probably just a very short time before Peter is executed. And you get a sense as you read through this letter that Peter understands this is coming and it's going to be soon. It it, it appears as though the people to whom Peter writes this letter are close to him. They're people that are dear to him. They might be the people to whom he wrote the first letter. We don't really know. But this this group of people, whether it's a congregation or maybe a a few congregations together, are people that, that Peter has great affection for. He cares about them and he's worried about them. You know, everything written in the scriptures, it has the purpose. It comes to us because there's something in this that God wants to teach us. There's something in every scripture that is addressing something of our fallen condition. And as Peter writes the second letter, he's thinking about some specific things that those people are dealing with. And as we move through this letter, we're going to see that the things they're dealing with are not all that different from stuff that we deal with. He's concerned that that this group of people have forgotten that they are people of the resurrection. They've forgotten that that God has great plans for their lives and his desires for them are to to live above the level of mediocrity. But to live in the power and the strength and the victory of the resurrected Christ. And they have forgotten that. They are living with great opposition to them. From outside the church as, as, it's, as the culture and as the, the, uh, the government and, and the opposition squeezes them. And he's concerned that they're going to hold up. But he's also concerned about difficulties that are forming within the body of the church. You know, you, you read through the New Testament letters and you make some suppositions about the problems that are going on and scholars examine this and they look at history and they try to put some things together and it's hard to know exactly but it seems as though what's happening here in this in this group of people to whom Peter writes is that it's the beginning movement the first beginning formings of what later becomes known as gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And there are a lot of facets to this, and we'll be talking a little bit more about those as the weeks progress. But, but one of the elements of Gnosticism is this idea that 
only the elite can really know God. That, that only the people who have had this mysterious understanding of the secret formula have been a, are able to unpack what it means to know God and have any kind of relationship of intimacy with God, much less any kind of power in their life because of God. It's as though you, you join a lodge or a club and they have a password to be able to get in the door. And the only people who can get in are the people that know the password. And, and this, this heresy that, uh, that arises in the church, and you see it dotted around different places, at least the beginnings of it, are, are telling people that most of the rest of you are just going to have to settle for mediocrity. But we who have, have been enlightened, we who have, have understood the code, we who have, have gotten the secret, uh, we've got more. And we'll try to help you with that a little bit. And they're really forming these circles of worshiping them, not the true Christ. And something of that idea seems to be at, at, at work here at, in the group of people to whom Peter writes. And what it ends up being is, what it ends up is that you have a church, a group of people who have decided that, why bother? Why should I worry about being anything more than I am? What, what I've got is, is good enough, I guess, and there's nothing more that God wants from me. But the reality is that's wrong. When you look at, at what Peter says, beginning in verse 4 and then on into the end of the section we read, we see these great plans that God has for people. It's as though he's, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. He, is, he has... Um, Therefore, my brothers, if you do these things, you will never fall. You'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, God has so much more for you. He, has, he wants you to live in victory as you face the opposition of this world. And ultimately, he's going to bring you to the eternal fulfillment of his kingdom. And you're going to walk into that kingdom and he's going to welcome you with open arms and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. When he talks about not falling, some versions not stumbling, I don't think he means that, we have the, that we're never going to sin. We're human. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to struggle. But I think he is talking about the fact that through his grace, we don't have to fall away and miss out on the eternal reward that he has for us. And that in God's faithfulness and in his promises, he has so much more for us than we typically believe. I, I think most of us have, have come to the mindset, maybe it's because of how our lives have gone, maybe it's because of how the, we, disappointments we've had about a variety of things. We tend to think that mediocrity is good enough. That, that if, we can just, if we can just survive a little bit, then... We'll be good. And all the while, God is saying, I have so much more I want to do in your life. I want you to live in the fullness of my blessing. I want you to know the joy of intimacy with, you, with me. I want you to know me. I want you to be holy. I want to be pure. I want to do that in your life. When we come to verse 10, uh, he talks about our, our, actually in verse 3, he talks about our calling in Christ. And he says in verse 3, 
His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these things, he has given us his very great and precious promises. He has given us all that we need to live victoriously. God has provided us with his grace and his mercy to live beyond mediocrity. He's given us the tools to do this. I'm just not sure we access them. We sometimes think, well, we're on our own. It's like a few years ago, my brother-in-law got a new job selling supplemental health insurance. And he'd never done this before. He was hired in late spring, early summer. He didn't make his first house visit to try to sell insurance until well into the fall. Three, four months time. Because they wanted him to make sure sure that he was prepared and ready. And he studied and he took tests and he, he learned all the dynamics of insurance. And he went through all these months of trying to do this. And it was, and, and at the end, when he went to make the first call, he knew what he was doing. He was equipped. He had the tools. And God has given us those tools. Paul talks in, in here about our calling, our election. And the minute those words come up, there are all kinds of discussions that arise in the church. It is one of the points that that divides people theologically in the church. Do we believe that 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 election, that calling means that God has decided you're going to be in the kingdom and you're not? And and there are various nuances of that that that, you know, are are part of the kingdom and and the idea of theology. And and there are there are very, very smart, wise scholars who say, Yeah, that's what he's talking about. I tend to think that there is a little different nuance to that. I think that when he's talking about calling, when I put in the context of all the scriptures, I I think that when, when Peter is talking about our calling and our election, he's talking about the designs and the plans and the desires that God has for every single person. That God is calling all of us through his Holy Spirit to live in relationship with him. To know the fullness of life with him. And that's his design. That's his calling on our lives. Now not everyone chooses to to accept that. Not everyone chooses to respond positively to that. But that's God's desire. And Peter says those of you who have responded positively. Those of you who, who have sensed God's calling. And have responded to it. And affirmed it in faith. God wants to do something more in your lives. Here's here's the, the twist to what Peter says. It's not just about what God does for us. It's also what God expects from us. And it all starts with grace. I mean, I want to be very clear about that. Any choice we might make to follow God, to want more of God, to to exhibit to exude energy about God is only because God's given us the grace to do that. All of it begins because God in his grace has called us and has gifted us and has filled us with his spirit. But at some point in time, we have to decide what are we going to do with that? And Peter says in verse 10, make every effort to confirm your calling. 
Make every effort to take the calling God has placed on your life and do something with it. And when you start thinking about make every effort, he uses that phrase four times in this short letter. When I think about make every effort, I'm thinking about giving of my time and energy, my passion. You think about what it takes to lose weight or get in shape or learn a new language or or master a skill. If you really want to do that, you have to throw yourself into it. You, You can't learn French by an hour every month trying to study a French book. It's not going to happen. You have to give yourself to it and you have to invest yourself in it. And when you begin to do that, it means that in order to sacrifice, you, you have to deny yourself some other things that you might want to do. And why would we do that? Why would we make that kind of investment? Why, why would we sacrifice some things in order to accomplish this task or, or get to where we want to be? Because it's important to us. The only reason we're going to make every effort is because it's important to us. And some things are just not important to us. And so we don't do it. I didn't grow up with uh, weapons in my house, in our house. We, we didn't have guns. Um, and in fact, I have, I have a cousin who probably is the only relative I know who has guns. I don't know. I can't say that for sure. He has one of the largest collections of buck knives in the eastern United States. So I'm assuming if he has knives, he probably has guns. But I, I don't know. I'm even making a wrong assumption. But I do think he hunts. So, you know, I didn't have any of that. The first church we served after seminary was in southwestern Wisconsin in the middle of, of uh, the countryside. You had to drive 12 miles to get to anything. There were two things that you could count on for virtually every person that lived in the vicinity of our church. One was they had some connection to the dairy industry. Either they milked cows or they drove the milk truck or they worked at Wisconsin dairies in town. Or they were retired from one of those jobs. And the second thing was that they went deer hunting. The hunting season in Wisconsin is only nine days. So it is intense. And, and I remember the, you know, the first year, it starts the Saturday before Thanksgiving, and all the guys in the church are saying, you got to go hunting with us. This will be awesome. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, okay, I'll do it. So, you know, they, Saturday morning, you know, we're up early, and they, they would go into the woods. They put me in this spot, and they say, there's all kinds of deer come by here. You just wait here, and, uh, you know, we'll keep in touch with you, and, you know, just, you know, it's a good spot. Like, all right, fine. So I stand there and, you know, for the next four or five hours, I saw dozens of deer and I shot at a lot of them. (laughs) I didn't hit any of them, but I shot at a lot of them. And, you know, and I decided that if you're going to be a deer hunter, probably one of the first things you need to do is learn how to shoot a gun. And if you're going to learn how to shoot a gun, you probably ought to own your own gun so you can practice. Because the only way you're going to learn how to shoot a gun is to practice and get used to the same weapon all the time. And I came to the conclusion, I'm not that interested in deer hunting. You know, to buy a gun and to spend the time practicing. 
And, and the other guys there in the church, they loved it. And so they did that. It was passionate. It was a passion for them. But it wasn't for me. And there are things in our lives that are not passions for us. And so we just don't make that much effort for them. And Peter is saying, if you want to know Christ, if you want to, if you want to, be, if you want to be holy, if you want to know all that God has for you, it's got to be a passion for you. It's got to be important to you. It's got to be significant for you. And I wonder if it is for us. And the reason why we don't give ourselves to it is because it's not all that important to us. But he also says you ought to make every effort, not just to confirm your calling, but also to grow in your faith. Beginning in verse 5, he says, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying the effort we're making is to move from this initial step of faith, which we all need, to be people who are known by love. I was thinking as Joy was quoting about Francis Chan, and he talks about the the need for love that's not just human love, but, but divine love. That's, it's so true, and I think that's part of what Peter's saying here. Too often we hear, well, just love people. But we don't love people out of a heart of faith. It's just human love. And what we need is, is, a, is a life that's grounded and rooted in faith. Faith in Christ and all that God has done for us. That as we desire more and more of Christ and as we're making the effort to use the spiritual disciplines and to engage ourselves in the scriptures and prayer and gathering together and all the ways that tools that God has given us that we begin to learn and grow and move so that we are people who truly love as Christ loves. And that's God's desire for us. Can you imagine being accepted to Houghton College as a student, and you go through all the process, you get accepted, you're excited, you move in the dorm, and you never do anything else. You don't go to class, you don't buy a book, you don't study, you don't do anything else. You just sit in your room. And at the end of four years, which obviously probably wouldn't last four years, but if, if you, they let you hang around for four years, you get to the end, and then you're shocked they didn't give you a diploma. And you say, but I, I was accepted. I, I came, I showed up. I look at you and say, that's just the beginning. I mean, the, the education process is moving on from there. And, there. and there's so much we want to give you. Why didn't you take advantage of it? And I suspect that we'd get to the end and probably if we, if that was our position through the four years, we'd probably blame the institution for not giving us a diploma instead of looking in the mirror. And Peter is trying to help us understand that as awesome and as necessary as those beginning steps of faith are, that faith ought to catapult us into so much more. And developing our character and who we are as children of God through the resurrected Christ. That ultimately this connection of faith to love is what we see in Christ. And that's what God wants to develop in us. And he says, when that begins to be your passion and you're, you're investing yourself in it and you're willing to, to let go of other things so that you can do this and give yourself to it, then the result is that you're effective and productive in your witness. And you see fruit coming out of your life 
And, and you begin to understand more of who God is, not just from, from knowledge, but from experience. And people look at you and say, there's something different about them. It's because the risen Christ is seeping out of you because you're, it's been a passion for you to embrace him and to know him. But there are always obstacles to us. There's always things that are, that are trying to keep us, holding us back. Things in this life, the, the busyness and the struggles of, of life. And, and it's not as though we do that intentionally. Christopher Hall in his book, uh, Worshiping with the Church Fathers, says that, talking about, he's talking about prayer, but I think it applies here too. He says, you don't wake up in the morning and say, what can I do today to avoid growing spiritually? You know, we don't say to ourselves, how can I get away from doing anything that might make me more like Christ? course we don't say that we just let the important things take over the place of the most important things and we let busyness take control of our lives and and we don't give ourselves to to time with god and we don't utilize the spiritual disciplines and we just sort of go through our days thinking well this is good enough and in talking about the church fathers he says It is a sobering thing to consider that from the patristic viewpoint, what to them is they call spiritual sickness looks an awful lot like normal human contemporary life. Frenzy, frenetic pace, self-absorption, self-deception. Peter says, the problem is we're nearsighted. All we're looking at is the world right now. All we're thinking about is what I want right now. We're not looking at the big picture. Now, I understand what he's talking, when he's saying when he talks about nearsightedness, because I'm nearsighted. If I take my glasses off, I can't see the big E on the chart when I go to the eye doctor. I cannot in any way distinguish any of your faces. I can't see the words on the screen. If I were outside, I couldn't tell you the difference between a deer and a frog. You know, I mean, I, I, I can't see it. I understand that. But I can see things up close. I can read. In fact, I often read, take my glasses off to read. It's just a little less strain on my eyes. But as I'm reading and I've got that book right in front of my face, I'm oblivious to everything else going on. I can't see anything beyond what's right in front of me. And I suspect many of us suffer from that spiritual malady. We're so focused on on what we're doing now. We're so focused on, on life now, and it's important. But our focus is so right in front of us that we're missing all that God is doing and the the long view of life and the long view of the kingdom and what it means to be people of the resurrected Christ and all the great plans he has for us and the blessings he wants to pour into us. And God knows it's hard. It's difficult. It's hard to let go, as Peter says, of our past sins and and, and to forget the things that God has done for us. And we can get so wrapped up, and the evil one wants us to get wrapped up in our failures. And he puts them right in front of our faces that we forget Christ has died and is risen, and he's forgiven our sins. He's created us. He's made us new. We're new creatures in him. But that nearsightedness causes us to forget 
But God is never leaving us. God is right there with us. Paul talks in his book about it. It's like, it's like parents who are, who are trying to, to, to help their, their child walk. Those first few steps, they're toddling back and forth. That's why we call them toddlers. And they take a few steps and stumble. Parents don't scold them because they didn't take 20 steps or because they can't run a wind sprint. No, we're all cheering because they took two steps. That's awesome. And parents are right there. And they may, children are going to fall. They're going to get scrapes and bruises and bumps. But parents are there to protect them from serious injury. And our heavenly father is there for us. He understands the difficulties we face. He understands how easily we forget. He understands how quickly we become nearsighted. And that's why he is continually prompting us to look at him. And to use the spiritual disciplines. And to make every effort to confirm our calling. And to commit ourselves to more and more of life with him. The problem is not that God doesn't give us the tools or that God's grace isn't sufficient. The problem is our passion, our yearning, our desire to want what God wants. A year or so ago, someone sent me an article by Fred Karpoff, who is professor of piano and ensemble at Syracuse University. And in this article, he talks about going to a national convention of piano pedagogy where he listened to a speaker who said, I have people come to me all the time and say, I used to play the piano. And he said, I always translate that into, I was a renter. And he says, because, you know, they played the piano for a while. They, they worked out for a little bit. But really, when it came to piano playing, they were just renting it. And he said, as piano teachers, I want you to help your students own playing the piano. To move from being renters to owners. And Karpov goes on to talk about people who love to play the piano. It gets in your blood. And, and, you, and you eventually, as you, as you work at it, and as you're fulfilled by it, you move to the place where you're no longer a renter. You're an owner. He says, 15-year-old daughter went to a camp, four weeks. Every day they, were gonna, they had to play the piano for three hours. He said, my wife and I weren't sure how she was going to do it because we had a hard time getting her to play 20 minutes a day. But she went to that camp and, at that, and during those weeks, something happened in her. After the camp, we went to this conference and the family all went and one day they went to hear one of his presentations. And when he was done, he, he heard this beautiful melody coming from a side room and he quietly made his way in as he watched this young lady intently alone running through this classical piece and it was his daughter he said in that moment everything changed in their home he said now we are negotiating continually about who gets time at our family piano and she's asking me questions like, Dad, do you think I could try that Rachmaninoff prelude like my friend at camp played? 
And her, and her interest in playing is beyond the classical. She's playing show tunes and, and contemporary pop tunes. And she's reading music and she's playing by ear. And she's developing this sense, this holistic sense of what it means to play the piano. And he said, it's still early, but I can see her already making an investment in becoming an owner about playing the piano. As you think about your life, as you hear God's calling on your life, as you think about your passions, your yearnings, where your time goes and your resources and your energy and your focus, would you say that spiritually you're a renter or an owner? The answer is monumental. The consequences are eternal. It's one of the most important decisions any of us will ever make. Let's pray. Father, we have no doubt of your desires for us, your calling on our lives, the blessing, the rich, abundant blessings you desire for us eternally and now. Father, give us grace and help us to want to be owners rather than renters. To be passionate and sacrificial about our effort to know you and to grow in you. We pray this Through the mercy of Christ. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. Let no one caught in sin remain inside the lie of inward shame, but fix our eyes upon the cross and run to him who showed great love and bled for us. Freely you bled for us.
Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead, we are one with him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with you now and forevermore. Amen.